Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. Today, we're mixing things up a little bit. We're going to feature a discussion from Past Present, which is a podcast that's produced by three Columbia alumni. Nicole Hammer is a research associate at the Miller Center for Public Affairs in Charlottesville, Virginia. Natalia Melman Petrozella is an assistant professor of history at the New School. And Neil Young is a historian and author of We Gather Together, The Religious Right and the Problem of Interfaith Politics. Each week, these three historians take an hour to debate and rehash the latest political and cultural developments in the U.S. and beyond. So we wanted to give you a little taste of past-present. And this episode that we're going to play grabbed us not only because the conversations were fascinating and insightful, but also because the discussions focused heavily on alumni from Columbia and Barnard, specifically Ruth Bader Ginsburg in a segment about the passing of Antonin Scalia, and Joan Rivers in a segment about women in comedy. We're not going to play you the whole show, but we're going to play you most of it. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Here's Nicole with the Scalia segment. Antonin Scalia died at age 79. His unexpected death sent a seismic shock through American politics. As a Supreme Court justice, Scalia loomed large. His booming personality and revolutionary judicial doctrine remade American jurisprudence in the 30 years he sat on the court. He secured legitimacy for the doctrine of originalism, and secured his legacy through sharp-quilled opinions that combined unshakable certitude with withering disdain. His death also marked the end of the court's conservative majority. Now the court has four conservative justices and four liberal justices, and Barack Obama sits poised to name Scalia's successor. So let's start by talking about Scalia's judicial legacy, and then we can begin to get into the nomination fight that's brewing in D.C., Scalia advanced this idea of originalism or something called textualism. Neil, what's originalism? Originalism is the legal philosophy that we should interpret the Constitution by thinking about it only as its writers, its original authors intended it to be interpreted, and that we have to go back to the moment in which it was produced to understand the original author's intent as the only framework for making our own legal interpretation. But you used originalism and textualism interchangeably and I know a lot of people have done that, and actually they are not the same interpretive philosophies, and I think it's worth parsing those differences. Textualism means going to the text itself and giving it what's called a plain reading or a fair reading, and this is the idea that the text itself will reveal its true meaning, and that's actually an ahistorical interpretation Mm -hmm. because it sees the text as not rooted in a particular time as much as something that on its own, its meaning is self-evident. Mm-hmm. And so I actually see textualism and originalism in tension or maybe even in contradiction. And yet, in a 2012 book that Antonin Scalia wrote with another legal scholar, he advocated what he called textual originalism. So you see the ways those two are being brought mm-hmm. together, but they're not the same things. And I think that that's an important distinction for us to keep in mind as we go forward. But I think what unites them is a removal of the discussion from contemporary context. Agreed. In Scalia, we can see him pivoting back and forth between these two philosophies. He tended to be an originalist around cases of civil rights, cases about affirmative action or around gay rights. He could say the Constitution's authors never imagined such scenarios and that that would be a successful legal argument to make. 
around cases that are more about business interests and corporate interests, he tended mm-hmm. to veer more into the textual camp. And you can also see why that would be advantageous to do a strict reading of corporate statutes or corporate law and to not defer to originalist claims because you could also argue the authors of the Constitution didn't imagine multinational conglomerates. I think that that pivoting that Scalia made between those two legal philosophies helps us understand his influence on American law for the last 30 years. Just to name two of the more controversial decisions that Scalia was part of, when he was dissenting from the Obergefell decision, which declared it unconstitutional to ban same-sex marriage. He was, in many ways, an originalist. And when he was joining in the majority for Citizens United, he was very much a textualist, because one can't imagine that the founders, when they conceived of freedom of speech, understood speech as money. In many ways, he was a social originalist and an economic textualist. Right. When you think about those two ways of reading the Constitution, originalism and textualism, textualism sounds like biblical literalism, right. doesn't it? Taking mm-hmm. the text on its own terms as unchanging over the years. And then the originalist approach of essentially reconstructing an intellectual history of what the founders were thinking and where they were coming from sounds like a much more considered analytical way of conceiving of the Constitution. Originalism, now we associate so much with jurisprudence, which is conservative. One of the reasons I think that's so fascinating is because we can't put our political labels of today, of course, on the 18th century. But if we think back to the 18th century framers and the political context then, the Federalists, who were the advocates of the Constitution, versus the Anti-Federalists, who resisted this strong federal government, the Federalists look a lot more like liberal-leaning advocates of a strong central government today. And the anti-federalists look a lot more, I think, like conservative defenders of individual rights, of states' rights. And so it's interesting that the strongest champions of an originalist interpretation of the Constitution today we think of as conservative. That's a really important point, Natalia. You know, who's often called the original originalist is Hugo Black, the justice Hmm. who was appointed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a liberal jurist. And there has been a recent movement, not too big, but from some liberal legal scholars such as Akhil Reed Amar at Yale Law School to claim originalism as a liberal endeavor. And he wrote a book a few years ago called America's Unwritten Constitution that makes that argument. Conservatives have claimed originalism as a conservative endeavor, but both liberals and conservatives have utilized originalism as a way of advancing their particular legal philosophies. And I think particularly in the death of Scalia, we might see a movement from the left to take on originalism as a project of Mm -hmm. liberalism itself. But that seems to me like Antonin Scalia won in some ways. Yeah. Because the idea that liberals find themselves in need of constructing this originalist history is suggesting that originalism is the appropriate way to approach the courts. Antonin Scalia was advancing originalism, which at the time was seen as this incredibly radical legal doctrine, to oppose what he saw as the liberal jurisprudence model of what you might call sociological legal theory, this idea that you needed to bring in the economic and sociological context of the time in order to properly interpret 
both the law and the Constitution. And so Louis Brandeis, back in the 19-teens, was a major advocate of this. The 1954 ruling Brown v. Board, which declared school segregation unconstitutional, that relied on sociological studies. And so there's this conservative critique of the court throughout the mid-20th century that says the court is too activist, that the court is trying too much to drag present-day issues into the interpretation of the Constitution. And that's what Scalia is pushing back against. So it's interesting that liberals are now trying to construct this originalist past instead of reclaiming that sociological jurisprudence. The interesting thing here is Scalia and Clarence Thomas were really the only card-carrying originalists on the court. Justice Roberts and Samuel Alito and Kennedy, the other conservatives on the court, are what most legal scholars refer to more as pragmatist. Mm -hmm. But, Nikki, you're absolutely right in the way that I think he made originalism for all the jurists, and even, I think, for the legal profession today, the starting point. And that's a huge victory. Even if people are not calling themselves originalists, if they don't believe what they do is originalism, there is still this idea, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and some others have said, we start with originalism, and then we move from there. That in itself has shaped the interpretive framework that our legal system is operating within, and certainly the interpretive framework in which our constitutional interpretations are being made. So all of that is Scalia's judicial philosophy. What about his personality? Because it feels like this larger-than-life personality is something that Scalia was well-known for, but it wasn't just personal. It influenced his judicial writings and his opinions as well. It's relevant to remember him both as the man and as the jurist. He famously said, I don't attack people, I attack ideas. And to paraphrase, there are some really good people who have some really bad ideas. His jurisprudence is known for containing some of the most scathing, disdainful, dare I say, cruel opinions on civil rights issues. At the same time, I have been a little bit surprised, given that fact and the real policy implications of that fact, to see all of the warm and fuzzy feelings, especially around his very close friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. On a human interest level, yes, of course, it's really interesting. She is a darling of the left, of women, of feminism, of civil rights, to know that they had that relationship. On the other hand, I don't think that his legacy should be RBG's BFF necessarily. <laughs> I think that we've got to remember some of the real cruelty that was infused into his decisions and its real implications. Absolutely. I don't see that friendship as historically significant at all. And we may be wrong about that. I mean, there may be legal scholars who will go in later and show us that there are ways that that friendship shaped the opinions that both of them made. And Ginsburg has made the point that Scalia's dissent sharpened her own legal thinking. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily a function of their friendship. That's a function of the fact that they are two jurists in a group of nine. I don't find that dimension of his biography very historically revealing. I think other aspects of his life are he was born of Italian immigrants. He was raised in a Jesuit educational system. He was the first Italian-American appointed to the court. And Reagan, in 1986, when he appointed him, cited that as one of his main reasons for doing so. There's an irony in thinking about Scalia's own relationship to the legal questions of affirmative action. Those components of his biography, I think, are much more historically significant. And I do agree with you, Natalia, that the vitriol and really the outright bigotry he showed in his opinions, particularly in his dissent, to me, that's the legacy that he leaves, in addition to, obviously, the actual constitutional interpretations that he helped shape. There's a difference between sharp 
legal thinking and vitriol. Right. In introducing that mm-hmm. kind of vitriol into his opinions, it fed into the idea that the court was part of these increasingly bitter political fights that were happening outside of the court. And so as we talk about polarization and anger in Congress, in the battle for the presidency, that Scalia reflected that within the court itself is historically significant as well, I think. And I think that gets us into the nomination battle that followed immediately on the heels of the announcement that Scalia had died. What I find so interesting about that battle is how history has been used in it, that both sides immediately raced to find historical precedent to shore up partisan points about whether Obama should name a replacement for Scalia and whether the Senate should act on Obama's nomination. So much of that has revolved around Robert Bork, who in 1987 was named to the court by Reagan, and his nomination immediately became contentious. When Republicans look at the court, they see the Bork hearings as the original sin of partisanship in nominations, because Bork was defeated. It was an ugly, divisive, partisan set of hearings. Almost all Democrats voted against Bork. Most Republicans voted in support of him. And even though Democrats gave Justice Scalia, who had been nominated a year earlier, unanimous support, and Anthony Kennedy, who was then nominated in 1988, unanimous support, this Bork hearing really has left a scar on Republican thinking about the court. The one historical thing that I would add to that is that these politicized and ideological nomination battles, they they don't begin with Bork. They were happening throughout the 20th century, whether it was Franklin Roosevelt's and his court packing plan where he wanted to seat more liberal justices on the court in order to make sure that his New Deal programs would be declared constitutional, whether it was in the 1950s when Earl Warren was put on the court by Dwight Eisenhower and calls for his impeachment rained down for the next 15 years because of what was seen as his liberal jurisprudence, or whether it was Abe Fortas, who was named by Lyndon Johnson in 1968 to become chief justice. And immediately, because people thought he was too liberal, faced opposition from conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans who immediately scotched his nomination. So these fights have been happening for a very long time. This ideological warfare between liberals and conservatives over the Supreme Court has been a feature of the 20th century, not just the Bork hearings. It's relevant, too, to close with a reminder that these battles about Supreme Court nominations have not just transpired in the 20th century. John Marshall, probably the first leading Supreme Court justice, was a appointed in December 1800 by John Adams, who had already lost his re-election to Thomas Jefferson. Louis Brandeis and Benjamin Cardozo were selected by Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover during the last year of their presidential term. There's a great op-ed by John Zimmerman today in the San Francisco Chronicle that points out that long history, which also reminds us that all of the questioning of whether Obama has the right to make this nomination feels like it's being pulled out of thin, heavily politicized air thanks to the election cycle. It's certainly not pulled out of historical precedent. All right, rolling on to topic number two. On February 8th, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee premiered on the cable station TBS. It was a landmark moment. Until then, every late-night television show in the country was hosted by a man. So we wanted to take a look at why exactly that is, and how Samantha Bee and other women comedians are changing popular culture. 
Natalia, why do you think it is that with so many late night shows, it's still so rare for a woman to be given the hosting chair? I think there are two reasons which are related. And one is this pervasive cultural idea that women are not funny, that women are just inherently less humorous than men and who would want to watch them in one of those slots. And then historically, until very recently, the fact that network TV was the dominant way of getting late night television meant there were very few spots. The intersection of that cultural idea and that media reality meant that women were not given these privileged spots. Now, with cable television and a lot more spots to fill, and hopefully with an abounding number of counterexamples to the notion that women are not funny, things are perhaps tentatively beginning to change. Where do you think this idea comes from, that women are not funny? Historically, where is that rooted? If we think historically about ideas regarding gender, women who are supposed to be the fairer sex, the more delicate gender, being funny, eliciting a laugh, being able to make fun of themselves, particularly being able to make fun of, say, sex or their bodies, none of that has been associated with conventionally appropriate ladyhood. So with that, the idea of a funny woman or a funny lady, I should say, has never really cohered in a meaningful way. Of course, there are notable exceptions. As comedy has gotten even more raucous and body, in some ways it's pushed women further from being able to play in that arena. Until recently, and we can talk about this, if there were funny women, funny women often did not have that all-important trait of ladyhood, which is conventional physical attractiveness. So it's very common to see the fat girl who's really hilarious, or someone who is very self-deprecating and makes fun of of her own physical features. But that's never really the pretty girl lead. And you see even traditionally pretty girls who are supposed to be the funny ones very much downplaying their appearance. Think of Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball began her career modeling. And when she went on as Lucy Ricardo, it was all about these ridiculous outfits and hats and really downplaying her sexiness. There's been a change in that regard about conventional attractiveness and the capacity for being humorous and not necessarily in a progress way either. I think that's a really apt observation, Natalia, and it makes me think of Joan Rivers, who made so much of her career making fun of her looks, calling herself the last single girl in Scarsdale, New York. She's an important person to bring into this conversation because she was the first woman to ever have a late night TV show. She famously became Johnny Carson's permanent guest host in the early 1980s, and that was obviously a huge platform for her comedy. In 1986, though, she was approached by the Fox network and given a late-night show, and Johnny Carson never spoke to her again. He saw that as a real betrayal. Rivers' show only lasted on Fox less than a year and, in fact, was replaced by Arsenio Hall. Hmm. Through the years, producers pointed to Joan Rivers' failure, if you will, in late-night as a reason why another woman couldn't be given a late-night comedy show. And so that singular example of Rivers has been used as a real explanation to stand in for the absence of women on late-night TV. I don't find that argument as a sufficient explanation for the dearth of women on late-night TV. I think there's much deeper cultural and institutional practices at work in terms of why women aren't on late-night TV. And we should note, obviously, Chelsea Handler had a very successful show the last couple of years. But Joan Rivers, as this pathbreaker who then 
actually didn't break the path in terms of late night TV. That has been, at least in terms of the industry, that's been the historical explanation for why there are no women in late night. And she had to push against what Natalia was talking about, which is that cultural belief that women can't be funny. And if you look at women humorists over the course of the 20th century, somebody like Dorothy Parker, she was known as a wit more than a comedian. Hmm. Somebody like Lucille Ball, as you mentioned, Natalia, her show began with her as a single woman in the city. And in order to be made more palatable for the American public, she was moved into the suburbs, she married, she had a baby. And so having to conform to gender norms that were constraining the type of comedy that women could do was a real barrier. And so when you begin to have, after second wave feminism emerges in the 1960s, when you have more women moving into comedy, they're facing tremendous barriers just based on that assumption alone, that women can't be funny. So Saturday Night Live brings in more women writers and more women performers. And those women are heavily discriminated against, both in the writer's room and on stage. It's amazing how much this is not a relic of the past. Christopher Hitchens writes an unapologetic article about why women are just simply not funny and connects it to this almost biological explanation of how men are wired to make women laugh. And he has this whole thing about to throw their head back and have that full-throated, open-mouthed laugh. He says that women are just not wired that way. With the examples that we've mentioned already on this show, Dorothy Parker and Lucille Ball, his asides are, was Dorothy Parker really even that funny? And Lucille Ball is so weird that we have to mention Lucille Ball because she's like the only one. It's astonishing to me that a respected intellectual can, in the 21st century, make an argument like that. It caused a lot of controversy, but that people can even entertain the idea that women as a gender inherently are just maybe not wired to be funny. I mean, what is happening here? And I think that reflects what one hears again and again, that despite incredible examples of women breaking through, like Samantha Bee, like Tina Fey, like Amy Poehler, like all these other wonderful comedians, there still is this old boys network in terms of comedy writing. Hitchens wrote that piece in 2011, it should be noted. And we can link to it in the show notes, though, you know, full warning about reading it. Your comment, Natalia, about the old boys network points out that, again, this isn't just a cultural issue, that it's a structural issue as well. And this is what I find so fascinating about what's happening with the Samantha Bee program, is that it's not just that Samantha Bee is a woman hosting this late night television show. She has brought to that show as a creator a process that brings Mm -hmm. much more representation into the writer's room. So as I mentioned earlier, Saturday Night Live, there was a lot of discrimination against women writers. Tina Fey has written about the types of discrimination she faced as both an actor and writer on Saturday Night Live. What Samantha Bee, whose background is in The Daily Show, which also has been criticized for not having enough women writers, what she has done is she recreated the application process so that it wouldn't recreate that old boys network of connections and opportunities that tended to create writers' rooms that were overwhelmingly white and male. And as a result, she has many more women writers and many more writers of color with varied experiences in television and in writing that she's bringing to her show. 
as a historian, we always want to think about, is there a progress narrative here? Is there a declension narrative? What's going on? And in some ways, all of these developments we're talking about, and we have not even really mentioned Amy Schumer or Kay Cannon or all of these incredible women. There are too many, really, to name who are making big moves in comedy, if not in late night, and some of that is by choice. But I think this piece that we brought up at the beginning of the segment is worth revisiting about the relationship of women's comic expression to their own physical appearance. Maybe we do see progress that, on the one hand, one doesn't have to be defiantly unattractive to be a funny girl. By the same token, we might see a similarly oppressive set of body ideals, which now pressure funny women to be more conventionally beautiful women as well. One example is Roseanne Barr, a very dramatic example, who had a hit TV show during the 1990s. She weighed over 300 pounds. It was part of her shtick. She's as much known now for gastric bypass surgery and tummy tucks and nose jobs and breast reductions as she is for her comedic career. Joan Rivers, as we've mentioned, a towering figure in this field, was not only known for her extensive plastic surgeries, but she also joked very late in her life that these days, meaning in the contemporary era, that you had to have at least a C cup to even get on open mic night. And so I think that that really feeds into some ambivalence that I certainly have where I'm glad pretty people can now be funny too and that appearance isn't everything, but I really worry about the pressure, and this resonates with have-it-all feminism, to not only be respected for your brain and your wit and your humor, but for that not to even be noticeable if you also aren't a size two and have large breasts. But that historical trajectory you're sketching out there, that the pretty girl couldn't be funny for a long period of 20th century history, Phyllis Diller, Moms Mabley, the way they use their unattractiveness as part of their comedy, to now, and I was reading a lot of women comedians who had written articles that were saying, the only reason I'm allowed to get up on stage now is because I'm pretty. Mm. That The physical standard is being used by comedy clubs and by network executives as the number one criteria by which women comics are being judge. That is a real historical transformation so that now only the pretty girl can be funny. I think it points to things that are larger than just the practices of Hollywood. But I think that this is a significant component of this history to think about. But at the same time, I mean, Amy Schumer posed in a very sultry nude calendar spread this year, which was meant to emphasize that her body type is beautiful and not something just to be made fun of. I also think it's interesting and maybe just heartening and it's reflected in our whole conversation here that we're talking about women in comedy and we keep coming back to this issue of appearance uh-huh. and of bodies but I, I think that we are hopefully not just reinscribing this problem but reflecting upon it the through line we can see historically is that women comedians are reflecting on their appearance Definitely go check out Past Present. The rest of the episode we just played for you has a lively discussion about how the Grammy performances by Kendrick Lamar and the cast of Hamilton shook up the otherwise dull awards ceremony. You can find them over at pastpresentpodcast.com. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. 
And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.